welcome to With All Wisdom, where we are applying biblical truth to everyday life. My name is Derek Brown, and I'm here again today with Cliff McManus. We both have the privilege of serving as pastors at Creekside Bible Church in Cupertino, California, and we also get the privilege of training pastors at the Cornerstone Bible College and Seminary in Vallejo, California. And today we are here with part two of our uh, series on apologetics and evangelism, asking specifically the question, is there a difference between these two disciplines? And uh, if you haven't been able to listen to the previous episode, we would encourage you to do that. Go back and listen to that, because this is going to follow up and talk uh, about some practical issues uh, that are implications of what we've already discussed. And we, again, would just remind you to check out withallwisdom.org, where you will find a large and growing collection of resources, all designed to help you grow in the faith. They're all rooted in God's Word. And uh, again, we have a lot of uh, resources on apologetics and evangelism at that website, withallwisdom.org. All right, Cliff, let's get back to what we were talking about. We left off by talking about the difference between how classical apologists and presuppositional apologists would define both evangelism and apologetics. And you you spoke for a while about a definition of apologetics, and you walked us through eight definitions, I believe, seven or eight definitions, getting uh, more and more comprehensive or precise, or however you'd want to say it, as you went down the definitions, and and more and more you start to see the divide forming between these two ways of approaching apologetics, classical apologists and presuppositional apologists. And what we're trying to argue for is a view of evangelism and apologetics that we believe is biblical, where uh, evangelism involves apologetics, and apologetics always involves evangelism. It always involves the gospel, because what are we defending? We're defending the Bible, or defending the gospel, and how are we defending it? With Scripture. And one of the practical takeaways that I immediately saw when you and I first started discussing these things years ago, um, for the, uh, those of you listening, uh, Cliff wrote a book now titled uh, the, uh, the, what is it called? Apologetics the, by the Book. Apologetics by the Book. Previously, yeah. it was uh, called Biblical, Biblical Apologetics, Apologetics, right? Now it's called Apologetics by the Book. And uh, Cliff had been working on that for years, and he's been continuing to update his material, and, and now it's in its latest version. It's a great resource. But I remember distinctly, and this was just reaffirmed to me the more that I would go back and, and read what you had written, that what this does by bringing these two disciplines back together like they're supposed to be, we're not saying they're not distinct in terms of their definition. They are distinct. One's proclamation, one's defense. But... By bringing them together this way, you're actually relieving a, a great burden that Christians might feel about their ability to master philosophy or master certain arguments, thinking that they have to master certain things before they can even share the gospel. And what we're saying is, no, you need to know the gospel, know the Word of God, and guess what? You're an equipped evangelist. You're, you're, you, can, you can give an apologetic for the Christian faith. You are an apologist, because like you said, there's no formal office in the New Testament of apologist, because all Christians, in that sense, are apologists. All Christians are called to defend the gospel. So I think the first big practical takeaway is that this actually emboldens, empowers, and encourages Christians to take up the task of apologetics. Yeah, that's huge. And the application, I think as pastors, we need to bring that up more and talk to our saints about that, because... I think if you ask the average Christian in our churches, it's somewhat biblically informed. So, are you an apologist, or, mm-hmm. or do you do apologetics? Yeah, I think a lot of them would say no. Yeah, 
right. because they think that's reserved that's right. for the elite professional. Right. Oh, no, that's what Billy, uh, William Lane Craig does. Right. That's what Geisler does. I'm not an apologist. I leave that to them. Mm-hmm. Then you're skirting a basic responsibility of the Christian life where, as you just said, every Christian is called to be to – actually to do the work of apologetics. Yeah. It's like, do you ever evangelize? No, I leave that to the evangelists. Right. Wow. Yeah. No, every Christian needs to be evangelizing. Yeah. Uh, can we go back to a point that you made earlier about you said that classical apologists are defending something that the Bible never told us to defend. I yeah. thought that was profound. Mm. And I think what you were saying is it's their attempt to def- uh, uh, defend the existence of God. Yep. Why would you say that the Bible never would have us attempt to defend the existence of God. Because maybe some people would hear that and be like, wait a second. Um, sure, we should be defending the existence of God. We need to do that all the time. Yeah. Pick up any – go on Amazon. Well, don't do this, but you could <laughs> go to Amazon and order any book on apologetics. Because mine usually doesn't pop up for whatever reason. But all those other ones do. You know, Bill Craig, Geisler, Sproul, Grote Heist from Denver Seminary. And if you order those books, you know, Introduction to Christian Apologetics, the first chapter, the very beginning, they're all going to tell you step number one of apologetics is defending the existence of God. Yeah. And then you're immediately introduced to natural theology and the theistic arguments. Mm -hmm. And then you have to sit there and memorize and learn these uh, highly theoretical philosophical arguments for Mm -hmm. the so-called existence of God. Mm -hmm. And you you know them all, Derek. You know, you got to learn the teleological argument. you have to learn the cosmological argument, yeah. the, both of which are rooted actually in the ancient Greeks. Not that they're bad, but right. that's where they come from, right. Plato and Aristotle. And then an Anselm's ontological argument mm-hmm. that came in the 11th century is very esoteric and difficult and hard to understand. Oh, you think it's hard to understand? Oh, that makes me feel better. Yeah. I think it's hard to understand. Yeah, too. to follow the ontology. It can be s- simply stated in one sentence or half a sentence, but – his uh, delineation of it is pages and pages and pages. Mm-hmm. It's very complicated, yeah. hard to follow. Everybody agrees. The ontological argument, uh, one of the most difficult to understand. Uh, and then there's the moral argument. So those are the main four main mm-hmm. theistic arguments. And the, you don't use the Bible in any of them. You supposedly use just logic and human reason mm. apart from Scripture. Mm. Uh, it's synonymous with what is called natural theology, which is doing theology without the Bible. Yeah. And that's step number one apologetics is uh, using these theistic arguments, these four, with the, un- with the atheist, it's assuming you're talking to an atheist, yeah. where you're trying to prove the existence of God, not with certainty, but with what they say, probability. Right. Uh, not certainty, but probability. And going back to your original question that, yeah, I don't see anywhere in Scripture from Genesis to Revelation where any believer is called ever to or commanded by God to prove that God exists. Right. The, the Bible just assumes God's right. ex- existence from the very beginning. Yeah. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It doesn't uh, – it just assumes it is true. Mm-hmm. And that's true all throughout the Bible. The Bible attests to that. The Old Testament says a couple of times that uh, he who says there is no God is a fool mm-hmm. because everybody knows there is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Romans 1 is the most explicit place where the Apostle Paul, through the Spirit of God, Shows us why that is true, that there are really no born atheists right. because every human being is made in God's image, whether you're a believer or not. And even though you're inherited sin at birth, you're still made in God's image. And as a result, you have the um, – every human being has a conscience. 
and a moral barometer within their soul. The law of God, it says in Romans chapter 2, complementing uh, what Paul said in Romans 1. So that in Romans 1, Paul says, everybody knows God, or everybody knows that God the Creator exists. And But because of sin, uh, they resist that truth they know to be true. So anybody that you meet that's an atheist, uh, Richard Dawkins would be the most famous today. Mm-hmm. Used to be Christ- Christopher Hitchens, but... Uh, Richard Dawkins, he's not an atheist, mm-hmm. and he knows it deep in his heart. Right. He knows God exists. Not only is he not an atheist, he hates God, yeah. and that's why he's doing what he's doing. Right. So the Bible clearly – Romans 1 clearly says that every human being born into this world knows that God exists, knows that he's the creator, knows that he is to be feared. Now, how do we know that? Because God made every human being in his image and gave them an internal spiritual barometer uh, called the conscience mm-hmm. and the law on their heart that convicts them continually and forevermore that God exists yeah. and they're accountable to him and you cannot escape it. And that's yeah. why you have guilt. Yeah. As the unbeliever tries to escape this reality of God the creator and God the judge hunting them down. Mm-hmm. And as rebels, they refuse mm-hmm. to bow the knee. So uh, it's interesting. J.P. Moreland wrote a book called Scaling uh, the Walls of the Secular City yeah. way back yonder. It's a book on apologetics. He's a classical apologist, rejects presuppositionalism. And in his first – his introduction – he admits, he says, the Bible never tells us to prove the existence of God. It just assumes it to be so. Wow. Thank you, J.P. Yeah. Moreland. I agree with that. Yeah. And then ironically, he goes on to try to defend the existence of God <laughs> using the theistic arguments. <laughs> so everybody – so you actually have – and that relieves a burden. You're talking about relieving a burden yeah. in sharing the faith in evangelism. Yeah. Um as every Christian should be encouraged knowing that when you go out to share the gospel, you're not going to run into any hardcore atheist yeah. that you have to prove God exists. Yeah. They already know he exists. Yeah. So you have that in your favor. Yeah. And what you're doing is you're speaking to their conscience. Don't listen to what they're saying. Mm-hmm. That's a distraction. They're mm-hmm. trying to fool you, saying, oh, I don't believe in God. Just bypass that and know, speak directly to their conscience where their inner conscience is telling, yeah, there's a God. Yeah, yeah. I agree with you. Yeah, yeah, I know what this Christian is saying. It's true, and I hate it. Yeah. Uh, so you speak to their conscience, not to what – you hear on the outside. That just helps evangelism because yeah. then you can just get right to the gospel because yeah. they already believe in God. They're already a theist. Then you just give them uh, what you already believe mm-hmm. in Acts 17. Mm-hmm. Uh, as the Greeks, they were worshiping false gods. Well, you already believe God exists. So, which is kind of interesting that William Lane Craig and those guys, they point to Acts 17 to validate or say that you can use natural theology and the cosmological yeah. arguments in yeah. your apologetics? Yeah. Well, you only use the cosmological argument with atheists. Hmm. And they say, well, that's what Paul did in Acts 17. He when Paul starts out in Acts, they're all theists. Yeah. They he believe was. in gods. There's idols all over the place. Yeah. And he says, you believe in God, you believe in creators, you believe in gods. That's a good thing because there there is a deity, and let me tell you his name. Mm-hmm. So he's speaking to their conscience. He's speaking to their false religion, but they already know there's a God. So uh, it really helps in evangelism. That's why you can always – it doesn't matter who you're talking to. You, you don't need a warm-up for the gospel. You can yeah. always go straight into the gospel. You don't need to grease the slides with the theistic arguments. Yeah, and I think that's such a relief because um, people as Christians naturally, uh, because they're born again, they're going to want to know Scripture. And that's just going to be a natural thing. They're gonna be, and they're going to be learning Scripture in church from the pulpit, in their Bible studies, in their personal reading. And – Basically, what you're saying is in order to uh, evangelize, in order to uh, conduct apologetics, you need to know Scripture. And 
that's what people ask me. They say, you know, they'll say, like, like, what's your apologetic approach? And I say, or when you're evangelizing, what's your apologetic approach? I say, my goal is as quickly as I can is to get them into the Bible to see what's going on in there for themselves. They can hear the truth. They can see it. Because, uh, first of all, it's the Word of God that's going to create faith. But second of all, if you think about what you're trying to defend, it's the truth of Scripture, right? That if I'm going to defend anything, it would be the truth of Scripture. Well, we can't, there's nothing to defend if they don't foresee it and know it. And and so that's what my goal. So when we had a, a college ministry up at Stanford, we had some guys who would conduct evangelistic Bible studies, and they just would study through the Gospel of John with some unbelievers, so they could see the Scripture for themselves, they could hear the truth for themselves. And uh, I think that's a huge relief because when it comes to sharing the faith and defending the faith, Christians need to primarily know scripture and it's just, it's just a, it's a huge relief. So. Yeah. And the gospel of John, you know, we use that a lot as the evangelistic gospel yeah, because it does have a purpose statement yeah. at the end there. I've written these or I've included these seven miracles so that you might come to understand that Jesus is the son of God and mm-hmm. believe in him and then have eternal life. So mm-hmm. it is, it's written to evangelize, but as you read it, um, in every chapter of the Gospel of John, Jesus is talking just about every – and in every chapter of the Gospel of John, Jesus is defending the faith. Mm. Meaning in virtually every chapter, Jesus is doing apologetics. Yeah. But it's the gospel of evangelism, yeah. which is just an obvious illustration that evangelism and apologetics, they go together. Yeah. The evangelistic gospel of John. Um, another thing I want to point out, and I point this out a lot when uh, in the seminary classroom or among our young adults – Sometimes you'll think of apologetics as, um, you know, smashing bad um, atheistic arguments, and you'll use various tools to do that. Um, and you you might be debating with an unbeliever, and you're you're smashing their their belief in evolution, and you're using some logic or whatever, and there and and trying to to show that. Neo-Darwinian evolution, in and of itself, is is um, just a, a poor argument. It's it's philosophy. It's not empirical science. It's uh, it actually uh, turns on itself and is self-refuting. And so you, you're kind of using this logic, and you're you point things out. Maybe you're bringing things in from s- other scientists who have pointed out the flaws in neo-Darwinian evolution, and so on. And you think you're doing a good job there. Well. What's going to happen to that unbeliever? Let's say you do uh, cons- convince them, okay, you're right. Um, what I did think about neo-Darwinian evolution, that, that's wrong. And um, they're not going to immediately become a Christian. They're going to just find another way of defending their unbelief. That's all they'll do. And we know that because that's man's nature. And I always take them back to Adam and Eve in the garden. What was the first thing that Adam did after he sinned? He went and hid from God. And that's what the unbeliever is doing. Now he's, instead of using a tree or fig leaves or whatever, he's now just using sophisticated philosophical or scientific or historical argument to hide from God. Why is he doing that? Well, why did Adam do it? Because he knew that judgment was was impending, right? And so sensing the, the, the defiled conscience, sensing the judgment of God on him, he hid. And I think that was a rational thing for him to do, right? Knowing that judgment was coming. And so 
uh, people, as you've already mentioned, they know judgment is coming. Their conscience bears witness that they have broken God's law. They know God is a righteous judge. And so in order to hide from that, they build up sophisticated shelters, you might say, of philosophical argument. But if you smash one shelter, it's not like they're going to say uh, they're just going to repent and believe. They're going to just run, run to another shelter. Yeah. If you are not at all times wrapping your apologetics with the gospel. Yep. Because you don't want them to run to another shelter. Yes. You want them to run to Christ. Yep. You want, they're, run, they're, they're still looking for shelter from judgment. And you're saying, I don't want you to run for shelter uh, uh, in a, a philosophical argument. Uh, I want you to run for shelter to Christ. And that can only happen is if in the process of smashing arguments and so on, that you are at the same time bringing the gospel so that the it's the defense of the faith and the, the evangelism all happening at once. Otherwise, you'll just push an unbeliever from, from one uh, fallacious philosophical argument to another. Yep. And, and he'll probably strengthen it and he'll probably make it better than the last one. Yeah. Uh, but nevertheless, so I, 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 I try to give people that imagery and I, I rooted in creation and, and Genesis 3 and then the fall and what, what Adam did and what all men men and women are doing now. And to remind people like it's, it's, it's not just about um, smashing arguments. You want people to be saved. And the only way that that happens is if you're bringing the gospel along with every yeah, apologetic absolutely. encounter. Yeah, you're not even, because if you're, I totally agree with what you just said, if if you're just debating with an unbeliever, say he's an atheist, yeah. and you spend all your time trying to prove to him that evolution is false, yeah. and that's it, you're wasting your time, yeah. number one, and then you're not being a good steward of the opportunity you yeah. have because you're not bringing the gospel. And say eventually you do convince this guy he's an atheist, and then he becomes an intelligent design guy. Right. Now, are there any unsaved intelligent guy, design guys yes. out there? There's a lot of them. Mm-hmm. So, that's right. Or theists. That didn't do any good. His, right. his, his soul is still damned. Right. Or... Uh, Bill Craig, who does his specialty is the Kalam cosmological argument. Yeah. It's about forty minutes long. It doesn't incorporate the Bible, Scripture, Gospel, or Jesus. Wow. It's just strictly a philosophical argument. And he is proud of the fact, and he even says it in this book and uh, Five Views on Apologetics, that he has convinced many atheists to become theists through the Kalam cosmological argument. And he celebrates that. Yeah. I've seen many atheists become theists from the Kalam cosmological argument, which. Not Christians, mm-hmm. but a theist. Yeah. Now, there are plenty of theists who are still going to go to hell, right. and the first theist going to hell is Satan himself. Mm-hmm. He believes in God. So that doesn't do any good. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you're trying to prove the existence of God by not making the gospel the yeah. priority, yeah. Uh, Mormons are theists, yeah. but they believe in a false gospel. Mm-hmm. They're damned and doomed unless mm-hmm. they repent mm-hmm. and believe in the true gospel. So you're right. Derek, we got to have the right priority. He always comes back to you know Romans one sixteen, what Paul said: yeah. "I am not ashamed of the gospel, gospel right. for it." it yeah. And really, it alone is the power of God. It's the only thing that has supernatural power for salvation. Yeah, for everybody, for the Jew and also for the Greek. Uh, so the Kalam cosmological argument, unaided human reason, none of that has any power whatsoever to yeah. change a soul. We've been, we have not even mentioned. We've talked about the power of the Word of God and the truth of the message itself of the gospel which has supernatural power just in the message, mm-hmm. let alone you've got the advocate of the conscience of the unbeliever on yeah. your side, 
and the law of God written on his heart that he can't escape. And we haven't even mentioned the work of the Holy Spirit, yeah. who's always – he takes the word of God, and he's the one that penetrates the conscience and the law of the sinner continually yeah. and forevermore. Yeah. Uh, that's John sixteen eight. The Spirit of God convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and he continues to do it long after you've shared the gospel. Yeah. And you leave, and two months later, the Spirit of God is still making them feel guilt and yeah. still convicting and still yeah. reminding them deep within their soul, and they can't escape it. And give me another beer so I can drown out the truth of the right. gospel that's violating my conscience yeah. and giving me guilt. Yeah, yeah. And I think you, you go back to the, the William Lane Craig example of the creating theists but not Christians, and you do have to ask the question, you know, what, what should be the aim of conducting a 40-minute apologetic presentation? The aim should not be to create theists. Yep. The aim should be to create Christians, to create born-again believers. Yep. And so, um, and I don't, I don't want to throw stones at uh, William Lane Craig's motives in terms of what he desires, but um, in terms of what we should, what we're rejoicing over, and and what we desire, I think it will it will shape how we steward our time and our resources uh, in in these kinds of things. And, yeah, what should be the aim? It reminds me of something I say to my apologetics classes. All the time, because they ask, the students will ask, uh, Pastor Cliff or Professor McManus, sometimes I don't feel successful in my evangelism oh, right. or yeah. apologetics. And yeah. Can you give us any tips? Can Can you be successful? I, I believe that a Christian can be successful 100% of the time in every encounter they have with an unbeliever, 100% success. And that is if you focus on, did I deliver the gospel thoroughly and accurately? Mm-hmm. So I think delivering the gospel, it's not contingent upon their response. Right. They may resist and say no. That doesn't mean you failed, but did you get the seed out there, the message Mm -hmm. out there clearly? Mm Because now the Spirit of God can use that the rest of their life. And maybe 17 years later, they get saved because they heard the gospel clearly from you 17 years before. That's success. Yeah. Amen. And again, another relief, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. To believers. Absolutely. Who aren't, most of whom are not going to be able to master. these sophisticated philosophical and logical arguments um, and who are not going to be able to engage people with these kinds of sophisticated arguments, but they can share the gospel. Yep. And if they can do that, knowing that that's what's required of them, boy, it just takes a lot of burden. If it's almost like if it's almost as though if you are framing apologetics in kind of the classical way, you are almost adding a kind of, um, I don't want to say legalism, but a kind of burden upon the believer as though they need to be doing something or performing something that, that Scripture itself has never yeah. required them to yeah. do or be. Talk about relieving a burden. Derek, you're the elder over evangelism mm-hmm. at our church. We've been doing door-to-door evangelism on yep. Saturdays once a month for yep. two years. Mm-hmm. Have we been successful, do you think? Do you think? our People think it's been successful. You know, that's a good point. I wonder what they think. It probably yeah. needs to be uh, reaffirmed. Do you, do you think it's been successful? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's been a lot of so gospel. So Pastor Derek things. thinks door-to-door evangelism at our church for two years has been successful. But at the same time, of the hundreds of people we've talked to, how many? what's the percentage of those who responded positively on those Saturday mornings saying, yeah, I want to believe? Uh, well, I, I don't think we've ever had a, yeah, I want to believe on yeah, a Saturday in, morning. In two years, we have had no positive responses. Yeah. And we're talking hundreds, if not thousands, of people we've talked to. We've had a couple of people. 
one recently, but just a couple you uh, respond later in faith, it yeah. seems. Yeah. But and some people would say this is failure. And I'm yes. I agree with you. No, we've had nothing but success. Yeah. Because it's on successfully delivering the message yeah. with people who heard. Yep. And we've done that a lot. Yep. And it's been neat to say neat to see uh folks who have very little knowledge of any kind of sophisticated uh, apologetic arguments who just have a knowledge of the scripture, a very clear knowledge of the gospel, going to the door sharing the gospel, asking questions to get people to think about the, the important things of life, and then presenting the, yes, the gospel of Christ. Absolutely. You just walk away going, man, it's a beautiful thing to yeah. see. I don't say to my 16-year-old son, here, son, take this package of radish seeds and go plant a row of radishes for me and come back in 30 minutes. And he goes and plants the radish seeds, comes back, and I don't ask him, where's the radishes? Right. How come you didn't harvest them? Yeah. Well, Dad, you just told me to plant the seeds. Right. Yeah, well, then you did your job. Yeah, exactly. You got to let it grow. Give it time. Yeah. Let the Spirit of God do His work. So what I love about this is all you've done a lot of hard work in this area, Cliff, of a lot of research, a lot of writing, a lot of speaking, teaching, years and years of teaching this at a seminary level. And all that rigor has been done in order to provide the church, I think, with a... Uh, a burden-relieving vision of what evangelism and apologetics really is supposed to be about. And uh, so thank you for doing all that hard work because I think it has a real practical uh, implication for our our people. So. Amen. Well, that's why I do it. I do all this from a shepherd's heart. Right, right. Um, and let's help our people be equipped and, and do it, the ministry, with confidence. Yeah. And they can. Amen. So we do hope this has been helpful for you listeners. We thank you for listening in. We hope that this has excited you about evangelism, relieved some burdens, uh, thoughts that you've had perhaps about some confusion even about what it means to be uh, a faithful evangelist or a faithful apologist. So we hope this has been helpful. Again, we encourage you to go back to listen to the previous episode of Kevin. These two go well together. Uh, you can check out withallwisdom.org for resources on apologetics and evangelism. And until next time...